If you're from New England, there's no doubt that the Boston Marathon holds a very special place in your heart. Our guest today has the distinction of being an elite athlete who managed to win the Boston Marathon in 1976, and along with Bill Rogers, was a competitive force throughout the 70s and early 80s. Jack Fultz joins us today and will share with us his incredible story and how he managed to transform his passion for the sport into a life of service dedicated to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. All that and much more coming up next on Chapters. My name is Jim Derrick, and welcome to another edition of Chapters. On today's program, we have in studio Jack Fultz. Jack is an elite athlete. Uh, he has excelled at the sport of marathon running, and um, I'm just honored to have him here. He actually won the Boston Marathon in 1976, and along with Bill Rogers, was just a competitive force uh, through the 70s and early 80s. Since that time, he's gone on to become the Dana-Farber Challenge Team training advisor, and we'll talk a lot more about how he came to that. Uh, also in studio, we have Chris Miskinis, who is an elite athlete in her own right and uh, is on the Dana-Farber Challenge Marathon teams. Welcome, Jack. Thank you very much, And Jim. welcome, Great Chris. To be here. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Jack, uh, I, I was so happy to meet Jack. Chris actually introduced me to Jack through the Dana-Farber. Um, Jack has a tremendously interesting story. In 1976, I didn't realize this, but as a young man, I was in Wellesley Hills, and it was a very hot day. I believe, Jack, wasn't it pushing 100 degrees that day? It was 96 degrees on the thermometer in Hopkinton. When That was back when the uh, race started at noon. 96 degrees uh, on an April day. I can't imagine. But I remember it very well because of the heat. I remember standing with my dad in a normal position. And I believe that's at what? Maybe the 13-mile mark, roughly? Wellesley's the halfway point yeah. uh, distance-wise. So anyway. you weren't at the lead, in the lead at that point. You just told me. For some reason, I thought you were. But, but you didn't take the lead until mile 18. I started out a little more conservatively because of the heat. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, and uh, yeah, moved into the top ten, and I only knew that because they had there were a couple guys, um, uh, semi-officials, I guess you would call them, out on the course, and telling us what place we were in. I would imagine once you get back into the fifties and sixties and beyond, they couldn't really keep track or of course. You know, uh, one by one. But uh, but yeah. I remember running past the Wellesley College and somebody yelling, "You're in tenth place." Wow. So that was, uh, that was um, to my recollection, that was the first time I knew very specifically where I was. Although at that point, there's a long stretch of road that going downhill and comes back up. So I could see a good quarter of a mile in front of me. Sure. And I could see the guys in front of me all single filed, you know, filed out. I was probably at that point, you know, maybe 300 yards behind the, uh, behind the leader. And the other guys were sprinkled out between me and him. And incredibly, at mile 18, you go into the lead. And you actually go on to win the race. Yeah, it was uh, it was a it was one of those days where the stars were all aligned. I mean, yeah. I was in the best shape of my life. I knew that, uh, but when it was interesting. I had come to Boston with the primary objective of qualifying for the U.S. Olympic Trials right. Marathon, which was only five weeks later. Sure, I had tried earlier in the year, and it wasn't because I wasn't fit. It was other weather conditions and circumstances that prevented me from getting my qualifying time. Those two other uh, occasions. And then I came back, and I was a senior at Georgetown, uh, what I was later referred to as a superannuated senior. I was 27 years old yeah. after some time in the military. But uh, um, so I run, ran an indoor season for Georgetown that same year and came off the track in March, just the, the month before Boston. And uh, so I was, I was in the best shape of my life. As I say, I was very speed trained. So when I slowed down a little bit for the heat, um, the pace felt incredibly comfortable to me. So the heat never really bothered me all that much. And, and you managed to run a 2.20.19 uh, in that race, which is, um, I mean, look, at I commute into Boston every now and then. And there have been days when I barely made it in 2.20 going in the Southeast Expressway. <laughs> it blows my mind. Uh, so 2.20.19 was a relatively slow day for you. Um, you have a best finish in Boston of 2.11.17. 
That came two years later in 78. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. So we're talking to a gentleman who not only won the race in 76, in uh, 77 he had a ninth place fi- finish, and in 78 you had a fourth place finish. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it, it's amazing. We were talking a little about the frame of mind that, that one has, like myself, who, st- why did we go to those Boston marathons? Why, why do people stand uh, now 10, 20 deep? To watch people because it's an incredible feat, uh, and we were talking a little bit about j- not just physically; it's it's the uh, psychological, and I think even the novice understands that. That you you look at even an elite runner, and you just imagine what's going on in their mind, and it's hard to it's hard to imagine how you can push yourself that hard. Well, it is. I mean, I think that's true of any any endeavor that you observe but have not experienced yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have a certain level of appreciation for what's going on, yeah. but then once you try it on yourself, uh, whatever that happens to be, and you shared with us the story of you running the marathon. Yes, I did. I, I, I want to brag to folks right now. I ran the marathon. Let's see. We can take Jack's best finish and double it, folks. That's four hours and 22 minutes, just about. It was a little bit under that in Newport. And you know what? I'm darn proud of that. I'm proud of finishing because, for me, that was my Mount Everest. Well, uh, you should be proud of that. And it was the inspiration of watching the Chris Miskinnises of the world and the Jack Faltzes of the world and the Bill Rogers of the world run the marathon and say, holy smokes, you know, what does this take? You know, what does it take? Um, now, interestingly to me, Jack, you just mentioned the Olympics. You qualified three times. For the trials. For the trials. For the trials, yes. And then out of the trials, you have to finish in the top three okay. to make the team. Right. And in 76, of course, the trials were only five weeks after Boston. Right. Had I qualified earlier, which I wanted to, so I'd have longer time to recover and be ready for the trials race and be really poised and taken on a shot at it. Um, five weeks was not enough time to recover. And right. I was so excited with the win. Of course, I foolishly went back home. And as soon as I could get my shoes back on, I went back out and started doing pretty hard training. So mm-hmm. by the time I got to the trials, I was absolutely wiped. And, and but, but when you did qualify for the trials, there was the boycott of, of the Olympics. That came four years later in right. 1980. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I never ran the trials in 80. I was qualified for them, but right. I didn't bother going because we weren't going to uh, send a team to Moscow. Sure. Uh, Bill Rogers didn't go either, and a lot of the other top Americans didn't run there. Yeah. Uh, Bill came back and won Boston his fourth and final time yeah. that year. And I had already moved to the Boston area mm-hmm. the year before, actually, mm-hmm. um, to go into business with Bill, interestingly enough. But that's another story. But um, um, so I was injured before the 79 race, just shortly before I got injured. And very disappointed because I was in better shape than I was the year before when I ran my PR, 78. And then in 80, likewise, I uh, got injured training for the trials. Sure. So uh, so I didn't get to run that, that Boston that year sure. either. Before we went on the air, Jack, you were sharing with me some of the really neat experiences that you had as a result of all of your success with this sport, including meeting the legendary Bruce Springsteen and running with the president of the United States. Can you share with us that story? So I was Georgetown uh, alumnus, and uh, in 1996, it was, uh, I graduated in 76, same year I won Boston, 96, 20 years later, they kindly invited me into the um, Athletic Hall of Fame. So I was one of five inductees that year, right. and uh, we went down. And uh, because of my involvement with the Boston Marathon, I knew that President Clinton invited the winners of the Boston Marathon to right. go down and run run with him. Yep. And so I wanted to be involved with that, and uh, I never got invited as through my um, role with the Boston athletic association so i figured i'd have to find another way of doing this never thinking it would really happen but uh, sure enough um uh, once i got invited into the hall of fame i asked the athletic department to pursue this and see if perhaps it wouldn't be a great photo opportunity if uh, president clinton would invite our entire class (laughs) over to run with him at the white house and they liked the idea and pursued it and sure enough we got invited to go over and run Uh, so it was monday morning uh, after the um, the induction weekend, and you know, the five of us went over. It was absolutely amazing. We went in. He comes sauntering down with a coffee mug in his hand and say, "Hey, how y'all doing?" He's dressed up in his running dudes and uh, ready to go. We went out back to get into a vehicle. We had to go over to a Fort McNair, which is a secured area in the Washington D.C. area, 
And uh, he said, nah, don't forget about those vans. Come on, we can all fit in the limo. <laughs> so, so there were bench seats in there that three and th- three people and three people, and sure. they face each other. And so there were six of us. It was a perfect fit. And we jumped into the limo, uh, chatting, telling stories. He was very engaging and uh, very interested in, in all of our stories. Uh, in the short period of time, we had to, to share and answer his questions. So we get over and did the three mile run. Um, you know, and he was a very determined guy. He wasn't in the best shape of the eight years he served because he, hey, but he had been, had maybe a few too many McDonald's in the recent past yes, or whatever, yeah, yeah. but he, but he claimed the added weight was from his weightlifting. So, uh, <laughs> so good for him. And, uh, you know, he finished with a flourish. You know, we, he was, uh, he was, he was, he was, uh, he, we were all getting a little tired, but he, he more so, uh, he had a little more on his plate than the rest of us. But, we came back, um, you know, um, the windows were all steaming up from <laughs> sweating bodies in the limo, and he's passing us out Poland Springs waters and invited us into the Oval Office and spent uh, an inordinate amount of time with you us. You mentioned Sign- a good hour with you. An hour. Yeah. yeah. it was unbelievable. So here's a man that's both met and actually shared a run uh, and water <laughs> and some time in his in his home with Bill Clinton and also met Bruce Springsteen. Yes, I'm jealous. Um, <laughs> the marathoning, you can ha- <laughs> that, yeah. that's your, your area of expertise, but I'll trade with you on that one. So how did your relationship uh, develop with the uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and specifically the Bar Fund, as I'll call it? Yeah, it's, well, it's the Claudia Adams Bar Program mm-hmm. in Innovative Basic Cancer Research. Sure. So it's kind of a big mouthful. But it's uh, because they fund young scientists with innovative, creative ideas mm-hmm. that uh, that they can't get funding from the NIH and other larger uh, federal funding sources. But um, I got involved. It's a long story. I'll try to be as, as uh, succinct as I can be. Um, way back in the mid-'80s, when I was still here, I was still competing, and I did a little bit of coaching and uh, to a junior high school in Newton, and uh, one of the young runners there I'd befriended. He was a good good student, good athlete, worked real hard, and I got to know his parents. He went out, and, and with his dad, they worked to water stop the Boston Marathon every year. So um, so I followed his high school career, and then he matriculated as a freshman uh, to Harvard College, and his best friend had been treated in and out of uh, the Jimmy Fund Clinic over a course of years with a brain tumor. And so he was a freshman in college as well, and unfortunately went in for another, he relapsed, went in for treatment, and unfortunately did not come back out. So Mike was uh, was distraught, of course, at the loss of his friend, and uh, he went over to the Dana-Farber and said, uh, told them his story, and he wanted to know if there was some way he could come over and help and continue Seth's uh, battle for you know raising awareness and funds for, for cancer research. And uh, the gentleman he met there, the employee at Dana-Farber, was a marathoner, and he listened to Mike's story and said, well, you're a runner, and you said you wanted to run the marathon sometime with your buddy. How about you run it next year? I'll run it with you. We'll train together, and you can raise some money in his name, and uh, and you'll, you'll feel more complete with that kind of an experience. And this was back in 1989 when uh, fundraising through athletic participation was really in its infancy. Really, yeah. PMC existed. Mm-hmm. The Jimmy Fund walk didn't start until the following year. Mm-hmm. So um, so Mike called me up and said, this is what we're going to do. I met this guy, and we're going to uh, run the marathon next spring, and would you be willing to be involved, help us train, get us into the race, whatever. So that was so I did that, and Mike ran the race. He raised a lot of money, had a very successful experience. I mean, he raised $35,000. And he raised $35,000 at a time. And so this was just a young man that was so motivated that he actually walked into the office and said, I'm here, I want to do this, and happened to run into Greg and happened to call you, and that was the seedling for the Dana-Farber, uh, the Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge team, which it w- exists today. It was, yes. It was um, because uh, Greg Gross, who you mentioned, was the employee at Dana-Farber that sure. ran with Mike, and, and we become friends through that process, of course. So later that year, um, um, Dolores and Wayne Weaver who had started the Claudia Adams Bar program. Sure. Claudia Adams Bar was Dolores's mother's name. So um, she is Dolores Bar Weaver. And um, so they had befriended Greg as well. They met him when they came in the Dana-Farber doors several years earlier mm-hmm. and then started the bar program, um, in large part thanks to Greg and his introductory, uh, in his introducing them to Dana-Farber. And um, so they came back to Greg and said, Congratulations on your marathon, on on Mike's uh, fundraising efforts, and we just came up with a good idea. 
how about you get some of your friends to run next year, the Boston Marathon. We'll give you a challenge grant of $50,000. We'll match the money you runners raise, dollar for dollar, and all the money will go to the bar program. So, again, this is very innovative back then. Sure it, was just, it didn't exist much, yeah. and uh, if at all. <clears throat> and uh, so Greg contacted me again, said, this is what we're going to do. Would you be willing to stay involved? And, of course, I said yes. And so that next year, 1990, we had 19 runners, many of whom ran unofficially as what we call bandits back then. And uh, they were sort of a, an eyesore and a, a sore to the Boston Athletic Association. A motley crew. <laughs> exactly. But they would stay and they would start in the back and kind of run unofficially and uh, they would be tolerated. It was, you know, public relations issue for the, for the, for the marathon itself. Uh, they didn't want to just kick them out, but they had to kind of corral them. And nonetheless, some of our runners were running as such, but uh, others had entries. We had a few qualified runners. And um, and so, yeah, they raised, the runners raised $51,000 to get, trigger the full $50,000 challenge grant from the Weavers. It's incredible. And the Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge was born. Off it was. Folks, I want to remind you, we are speaking with Jack Fultz. Jack Fultz is an elite uh, Boston Marathon runner, along with being an elite athlete, um, has been for many, many years. My name's Jim Derrick. The show is called Chapters. You can find us over on our podcast at chaptersradio.com. We're just talking to Jack about the birth of the Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge team, uh, which happened back in 1990. And like so many things, it was a real true grass ref, grassroots effort. This was not some corporate think tank that came up with this idea. It was, yeah, and in yeah. fact, your your me your uh, involvement in some ways was because you'd coached this young man in eighth grade. It was very serendipitous. Yeah, when, when, you, when you look back on it, I was in the right place at the right time. I mean, I, I continue to get asked how I got involved and. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily elaborate on the whole story, as, as I've shared with you already, but, uh, but yeah, I, I consider myself to be very fortunate to have been in the right place at the right time to now still be involved, and um, for lots of different reasons, but uh, because I have a lot of friends who were competitive as I was back when I was. Uh, my halcyon days have long gone, and but I'm still involved in the running world, and uh, Somebody kindly put it uh, very nicely uh, not too long ago, and they said, look, you're now um, using your running to save lives. Thank you for saying that. I, that's what I was trying to think of the words when I came along, is that, yes, this is about amazing athletic accomplishments. Um, and, Chris, your eyes lit up when you were talking about Jack, and I don't believe the two of you have met. But when we spoke of Jack, your eyes really lit up, and you said you have to meet you have to meet Jack. So not only are you inspiring people to give to the fund, but you're inspiring runners to join the team. There's over what 550 runners, and you've raised uh, 85 million dollars in the 28 years we've been running. Yes, it's a, uh, about it's 85 amazing. million. Chris, what does what does it mean to have a coach like Jack involved <laughs> with the Dana Farber Marathon Challenge? It's like a dream, you know. It's something to share. Um, something you love to do with someone that has the knowledge and the history mm -hmm. of what I'm doing. Um, and he has, you know, more to draw on. So it's very inspiring to share something that's so special to me in my years of running and my experience and then to hear his experiences right it must be you know i imagine okay if i was a musician and i'm a i'm a i wish i was a musician so um if but i do try to play uh, play a little bit and so it would almost be like having bruce springsteen being the being my mentor uh, and having access to him in a way because jack is that that person that if you're into marathoning um what an incredible story and what an inspiration to have as part of the team along with that jack brings an incredible personality jack has gone on actually taught sports psychology at Tufts and is still very immersed in that subject. So much of this is an affair of the mind, right? Oh, very much so. It's, yeah, uh, yeah as, uh, we were talking about that notion that uh, Yogi Berra, the old Yogi Berraism, you know, 90% of this game is mental, the right. other half is physical. Right. And the thing that amazes me is that, um, Chris, we, you have an amazing story about this, which I'm going to ask you to share about your involvement uh, with the Dana-Farber uh, Marathon Challenge team. But the stories, every, every individual one of those 500 plus runners bring with them an incredible story of why they're participating am i would i be right 
Oh, absolutely. And and I want to touch on what Chris had said. I mean, I'm very flattered and honored for the kind words that she said. And I'm a big Springsteen fan myself. Good. I listened to his music. Uh, I even had the opportunity to meet him one time. So, uh, And I was in awe. But um, but it's stor- Chris's story and her experience and those of all the other Chris's on our team um, that inspire me and the entire staff of the Marathon Challenge and, of course, the entire staff of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And then you can go beyond. I think cancer researchers and the docs and, and um, you know everybody who's involved in that are inspired by the people who are really right down on the ground, either as fundraisers. Um, and a lot of our team members are cancer survivors themselves. I won't say a lot in a relative to our 500 plus, but we have a lot of people in, um, uh, in a program we call Living Proof. And um, I think we have 30 to 40 runners on our team every year who have uh, gone through cancer treatment and, um, and they're healthy and still fighting the, the, the good fight, so to speak. Yeah. Um, in the early years, interestingly enough, a lot of people who came to us who wanted to run on our Dana-Farber team basically saw it as a, an avenue into running the marathon. Their primary objective was to run the Boston Marathon, and they couldn't qualify. So they said, well, okay, if I have to raise some money for you, I'll do that. What do I have to raise? I just want to run the marathon. That was in the early years. Now that has really sort of flipped almost 180 Mm -hmm. degrees. And everybody that walks in the door wants to raise money for Mm Dana-Farber, and they say, what do I have to do? Well, you can run a marathon. And and so they do. And I I know that I read uh, that, that there are many people that run that are not. Christmas Guinnesses who are 54 marathons deep in their mm-hmm. career and about to be 33 in the Boston. There are many first-time athletes that mm-hmm. join you, right? First-time marathoners. 60% of our team almost every year are running their first marathon. You know, this show really is dedicated to the Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge and is dedicated to their ultimate um, benefactor, which is the bar program, uh, which 100% folks, 100% of the proceeds go to this fund. And I'm going to ask Jack to expound a little bit on uh, on what the bar fund does right after I, I speak with Chris about your story. Chris, how is it that you came to Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge? Well, I um, my son has special needs. He's 33, and he's had a big brother with big brother, big sister, um, for 24 years. And I I ran for and raised money for big brother. And then last year, Brendan's big brother's teenage son developed a rare form of bone cancer. Mm. And I just thought it, he was being treated at Dana-Farber. And I just thought it was a great opportunity and right. the right thing to do to get connected with Dana-Farber. I want to say you, you raised over $13,000. I raised $13,431. Right That's fantastic. <laughs> Folks, we're going to put a link up to both the Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge uh, on the podcast website, and we're also going to put, put a link up to Christmas Skinness's personal page, which, again, she'll be running this year her 33rd Boston Marathon, uh, 54th Marathon overall. When I mentioned that Jackson Elite Runner, I need to include you in that class. Uh, there aren't people out there that that do this type of thing that often. You just don't run run into them that often. You Would don't. you agree, Jack? Absolutely. Chris has run a lot more than me. <laughs> I've only run 14 Bostons and maybe about 45 marathons in my entire career, and I no longer run them. Um, so Chris has got me beat in both of those categories, well, and amazing. she's still going strong. So. Well, we're just going to ask you to switch seats. Then. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's, it really is. It's an amazing thing. Um, but I know Chris has this, this motivation behind her, this, this image of, of Brendan's big brother's son, uh, Will, I believe his name is, right? Will. Will, in your, in your mind, and he's always in your mind and happily in, in, in remission. Thanks to Dana Farber. Jack, we just talked a little bit about the bar program. Can you talk to us now 100% of the proceeds? Very, very unique. You just don't hear this that often. So, folks, I want you to remember 100% of the proceeds go directly to the bar fund. So what does the bar program do? Well, it really does a multitude of things. They f- we funded more than 200 uh, investigators over the history of the bar program, which is, um, you know, 87 was when it was founded. So this past year was our th- the 30th anniversary of the bar program itself. And they funded, as I say, 200 investigators who apply for funding through the bar program with their prospectus in terms of, of what they're doing. And mm-hmm. it's uh, their their... Applications are are reviewed, um, you know, to the uh, to the nth degree, um, to determine whether their ideas mm-hmm. uh, uh, 
really do have some merit to them. So it's not just a um, kind of a willy-nilly here. You you need some money for you to set up a lab. Mm-hmm. So they all have uh, have a lot of potential right from the get-go, uh, but it's still new, innovative, uh, cutting-edge science. Uh, things that have not been tried before have been considered, but uh, could lead to new broader pathways that ultimately end up leading. And there, there are drugs out there now that really the concepts of, of them started being funded by bar investigators. Right. And the, great, and, and the great thing is that I can imagine that many of these ideas would be on the shelf if it wasn't for the bar program. They still would be. They'd have no, no other way of, of this getting is, going. This is moonshot. In, in some cases, it's very yeah yeah very much a Joe Biden moonshot type of a thing. He um, or they, they um, it's really hard to sometimes make the connection from the original idea to an, an outcome because right. a lot of different things feed into to the the ultimate outcomes of pharmaceuticals and uh, and procedures. Um, that, that, that are developed and, you know, where do they originate from? Mm-hmm. But uh, the bar program in the early years, you know, we used to ask the investigators, you know, how important is the bar program funding relative to all the other funds that come into Dana-Farber um, and, and support the various laboratories and, and, and the research that's going on? And to the person, even the non-bar investigators would say it's absolutely critical funding because otherwise a lot of these ideas that ultimately germinate and and become part of new cancer uh, treatment procedures would never happen. Mm. They would never, as you say, get off this, even get off the shelf. Mm. Folks, I want to remind you, we're on Chapters Radio. You'll find us at our podcast, chaptersradio.com. My name's Jim Derrick, and we're speaking with Jack Fultz about the Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge. And we also have one of the participants and team members, Chris Miskinis, in studio here. And we were just talking about the BAR program, which is part of the Dana-Farber initiative, and how uniquely 100% of the proceeds raised go directly to support this program, which is putting a mainline injection infusion of cash into people's hands, cutting-edge research and development on new cancer treatments. Um, Very inspiring. You know, Jack, I'm I'm very interested in some of the developments that have come down the pike with cancer. And I, and I know that, you know, you're not in the, in the, in that particular area for mm-hmm. Dana-Farber. But I, I have often heard in raising money for other causes, gee, you know, I'm not sure where my money's going. I'm not sure whether or not we're really doing anything. You just drew a, a, a very interesting parallel that, that many times it's hard to direct, make that direct path back to the where the funding for the program and, and the ultimate idea came mm-hmm. from, uh, from the Bar Fund. The thing about the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is, along with the Bar Program, it supports people in in a variety of ways. It's not just treatment. It's it's predominantly treatment. Uh, the money, because it all goes to research, mm-hmm. uh, does not go into patient care per mm-hmm. se. It's, right. so it's what's called directed funds mm-hmm. um, uh, um, and other funds that come into Dana-Farber through other avenues and whatnot may be what's called unrestricted funds mm-hmm. that the Institute uses for its multitude of, of, of needs. Family support. Family support, uh, patient care, right. um, you know, um, building the laboratories out, right. all of that stuff. So it's not to say that that, that laboratories uh, aren't built upon bar funds mm-hmm. that's part of that process as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. but uh, and we've had a number of bar investigators actually run the marathon uh, we've had investigators that have devoted their and committed their entire careers of research very specific aspects of of lung cancer um, of breast cancer to very very specific kinds of uh, of, of cancers mm-hmm. and um, as they continue those journeys and you know, the bar funding for them may only last two or three years, and then they have to reapply for more bar funding. Or, again, they have now bootstrapped them up to be a recognized, nationally recognized laboratory mm. with um, results that they have achieved that are showing promise in, in greater areas mm. and then grow from there by virtue of, uh, of applying for and getting uh, NIH funding Incredible. And, and other federal funding. So. Very, very broad-reaching and integrated approach that's going mm-hmm. on over at Dana Farber. Jack, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this psychological end of marathon running. And Chris, Mm -hmm. I'd love to have you interject your thoughts on this because you are an endurance athlete, an elite athlete. Mm -hmm. But I'm very interested in uh, what what you think this event... I I can imagine it can be a, a cathartic experience for somebody that is supporting somebody that has cancer or somebody that has cancer themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Well, Chris may be able to address that more specifically than me because she is still doing it, raising, mm-hmm. you know, putting her foot to the ground, running training for the marathon through a New England winter and uh, and raising money. Um, I do some fundraising. I ride the PMC is where I do most of my fundraising for Dana-Farber. But um, it, it is. It, it's interesting. The more physically challenging an event is, you would think, the more physical, the, limit, the limiting factors are in the physical realm. Um, and to the person, every marathoner, certainly in my own experience and now with everyone I speak with, and there are hundreds if not thousands of marathoners over the years, they all acknowledge that uh, you know, their concern is whether they can do something physically. And then as they get really into it, they discover that sure enough, the limiting factors are, are, are mental. Right. And there's a, there was a great Olympic champion uh, from Australia years and years ago. He, he retired as an Olympic champion, world record holder in the 1500 meter, the metric mile. And he put it very succinctly. He said, you know, most of the time my mind goes out to train. My body just has to go along. <laughs> So it's so and it's really true, you know. Yeah. And if you frame it that way, you realize that every day you uh, you know are trying to put your shoes on or crawl out of a nice warm bed and head out to a freezing, uh, dark morning, or raining, snowing, whatever. And uh, but you've kind of committed to it because that's that's on the training program, and you know you've got to get it in. Um, you know, there are some ex- some situations where and circumstances where you're you're. Uh, discretion is the better part of valor, and you're better off working out indoors or maybe waiting till the afternoon. But for the most part, you got to get up and go do it. Yep. You know, the difference between exercise and training is that you have a very tangible, specific goal with a timeline on it. So that turns exercise into training. And once you sign up for the marathon, you have that. And and so you've got to you know get out the door, and you realize that the limiting factors are are mental. You talk yourself into or out of a lot of things, and it's a great metaphor for life. Chris, how does that translate in your world physically, training? As I do another marathon and another marathon, I find that I rely more on the mental part of it, that that's um, smarter or I have to use my head more for whatever my body presents at the time, that it's my head that I can draw on to figure out how I'm going to do it this year. And and I think folks can understand that with 54 marathons under your belt, you're likely not 26 years old. So you're you're bringing a lot of wisdom, a lot of years of accumulating um, data, really, on on what what it is that's driving you. And 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 would you agree with Jack that it's much more mental uh, at exactly. this point? Exactly. Yes, certainly. That it's you know you, I know I can do 26 miles. It's just how am I going to do it this year? Mm-hmm. How will I fit the the pieces of the puzzle together, make the challenge, and you know use the knowledge and and I emailed Jack and said, you know, this is what's going on. And he wrote back to me and said, you have all the answers. And I'm like, I hate when people tell you that, (laughs) you know, he's like, exactly right. Like you look for someone else and, and you need to be reminded that this is up to you to figure out, you know, you can have resources, but you have to figure out how will you do it? What will, So Jack was acting as a coach at that time for you on the on the Dana Farber Marathon Challenge team, and you'd hit some sort of an obstacle and reached out to to an elite runner who then reached back out to you and said, "You've got the tools." Right, and with a list of other things that I could use, you know, use how to kind of weed through, you know, how will I take this information and and use it from me. What a gift, though, to have Jack on the team at your disposal. Exactly. Like, Which is the, one of the first things you said when I met you. Exactly. That it's just so, you know, not only he's done it, he's done it at a, you know, an entirely different level. Sure. So, you know, how fortunate am I to have, you know, have someone that I can say, this is what's going on. What do you think? And, you know. I'm also struck by Jack's humility and his understanding that that uh, you may have been aiming for 211, which was your best finish at one time. But Joe, uh, Derek may walk out there uh, his, for his very first marathon and his goal may just not to be to walk or may it be finishing under five hours. And you support that athlete just just the same. 
their their goals to them, each individual's goal is as important to them as as the, the runners up in the very front, mm-hmm. absolutely, who who make a livelihood of this and who the media pays all their attention to or most of their attention to, uh, the race up front. And they commit many, many hours to this and risk injury and all of that. But, every, but the five-hour marathon does the very same thing. You know, this is their Mount Everest as well. Right. And it's, and I, you know, it's easy enough to... Now, I guess maybe to see that, I think I always, I always have right from the get-go, uh, had an appreciation that it, we're all in this together. Basically, speed is relative. That, you know, that's such <laughs> an important qualifier for this discussion because that that really is the bottom line. And 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 we talked a little bit about developing resilience and developing what I'll call an expanded level of consciousness of what what you are capable of physically. And challenges like this, to me, stretch that ability to conceive of what I may physically be able to endure and also, more importantly, that role of the mental the mental and the psychological component and how those two mix. Because if and when you are faced with physical calamity, which is a cancer diagnosis or some other illness or uh, emotional uh, trauma or whatever it happens to be, you really need to be in a position to, to have a... a different frame of mind, don't you think, than, than someone who hasn't pushed themselves uh, in this area before? Absolutely. This is fertile training ground is what I'm really trying to say. Well, it is. It is. And some of us are, are just fortunate enough to kind of back into it, if you will. There's, For example, there's a high correlation between long-term success in anything and the ability to delay gratification. And so if you look at, uh, at people who are successful in their lives and you look back at, at their developmental years what their experiences were in terms of, of cultivating that sense of delayed gratification, the ability and willingness to put in a lot of work before you get a true tangible or even intangible return on it. It's like practicing, that notion of 10,000 hours of purposeful practice before you really become an expert in something. Or You didn't just walk out the door and, and become an elite runner. I assume you had your share of failure along the way. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Time time and time again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And just a, because your failure might have been my personal best doesn't mean that it wasn't failure for you. It's all relative. It is all relative. Absolutely. And yeah. it's, you know, is it, the, I, I like the the phrase, you know, a champion is just is the person who gets up one more time than they've fallen down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes so much sense. And and boy, the, the metaphor to those that are battling cancer while you're out on that course battling the 26.2 miles in into Boston in whatever time it's going to take you, uh, the thought of your loved one or maybe what you've been through personally um, has to be cycling through your mind and giving you an appreciation for for just what it is to to fight in life. Um, and sometimes it's to fight for a cure and sometimes it's to fight for a better outcome or a better treatment protocol so that you're more comfortable for the long, long term. Outcomes aren't guaranteed, are they? There, there are a few guarantees in life, yeah. as they say. But yeah. uh, you, you show up and you put up, and uh, and you know, see the chips will fall where they may, as yeah. they say. Something you said a little earlier about, uh, you know, the runners being out on on, on on the race course itself and the support that they get there. Um, an interesting story: we had a runner many, many years ago who was running along, is running his first marathon, and um, all the runners, Chris will attest to this, are yelling because our runners have Dana-Farber on their race singlet, as well as perhaps their name, so people will be cheering them on individually. Well, this particular runner on our team didn't have his name on his singlet, so it was just Dana-Farber. So, and, and again, as Chris will attest, uh, she has 26 miles of, of personal applause and cheering section saying, go Dana Faba, <laughs> right? And uh, so this was happening to this particular runner on our team. And very late in the race, um, uh, finally, he, because he kept hearing, go Dana Farber, go Dana Farber. So, so this runner from California who didn't know what Dana Farber, didn't know that Dana Farber was a cancer research hospital, turned, <laughs> turned to our runner and said, hey, Dana. You sure have a lot of fans out here. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> he thought his name was Dana Farber. And so it is. Is it not, Chris? I mean, it's just 26 miles of cheering for for Dana Farber. Obviously, people who live here in this area know Dana Farber, but uh, go ahead, expound on that. It's like 26 miles of your best friends that came out. You know, they're like, they're there for you. And especially after the bombing, you really felt that people wanted you to have a good race and, you know, do what you set out to do. It's really, Mm. 
important and you know just it's the people you're running beside and it's the people along the course and I just I admire like I like being part of something that um, doesn't matter what age you are and it doesn't matter your physical ability that you know that I can share it with them and that there are people I've seen people with a respirator someone that had a wagon behind him with his equipment and he was out there having the time of his life or someone going up a hill in a wheelchair and and I think I'm just tired like this guy a woman is feeling you know the best of their life and want has trained and wants to be there and I'm tired or I admire the people that you know that that are charity runners that here they are they've trained hard they're doing something that is healthy and you know and good and social and they're raising money and they've kind of got it that you know this is a great combination to do all those good things mm-hmm. and and it's a lot of work so it's just amazing to be part of that kind of environment for the day and the training is really hard and the recovery as you get older is is you know more that you have to put into but the day is so spectacular and has so much meaning with everybody that shares it in different ways and what they're doing and you talk about 60 percent of people are first-time runners I didn't realize that I mean I I love to be connected with someone and I've done a little bit of training um, for other people someone who hasn't run it because to see it through their eyes it's just so incredible that that that's why then I always promise myself that I will be part of it next year because it's such an amazing experience right. to to be there and to be part of it and sharing it for whatever I'm doing it for and to know you know a little bit about each person sure. that's you know also doing it or what you know what I see and mm-hmm. I can get from their story or are the spectators what you know who are they too mm-hmm. so yeah it's an amazing day two things just jumped off the page as you were talking thank you for sharing that I think that was really powerful um, description of what it must be like to go along that route and engage in this endeavor which is basically a year-round endeavor uh, but with all the training and everything but two things that jumped out to me one is the very obvious parallel between this race, this event, this task, and communal effort, and what it might be like to go through treatment for cancer. You have a, hopefully, if you're blessed, and if you're at the Dana-Farber, you will you will have, if you don't have one, you'll have an enormous cheering section um, uh, encouraging you. My point is, we are better communally. We, together, we do more than we would separately and individually. Would that be right, Jack, from oh, a psychological absolutely, standpoint? Absolutely, yeah. And what yeah. you just described, Chris, is is the you know so much of what we run into on this program. We've dealt with the opioid epidemic. We've dealt with all sorts of survival stories. People that have had um, major, major uh, aneurysm, brain aneurysms, uh, car accidents, and gone on to survive and and live into their recovery. The key and central point of every one of these stories is the communal aspect, the fellowship, and uh, the the fact that we're all in this together, and the realization that um, uh, if I haven't experienced something yet, it's only because maybe I haven't lived long enough yet, or I just didn't draw that card, but I'm in it with you. Um, is that the feeling you get? Oh, clearly it is. You just described that of, of the Boston yeah. Marathon, and it propels you to want to be involved the following year yeah. and the year after. Yeah, and and I I have friends that every single marathon I've run, they have been at the sixteen mile marker at the you know going over the the ramp in Wellesley, the you know the highway, and and they're there for hours. They get six o'clock, they have to be there because the roads close, and they they wait for me to come by for you know for five seconds mm-hmm. that they see me and you know and and I look forward the whole race is there and then my people are I have someone at 25 who has been the miles that has been there um, for 12 years 12 years she's been to me at 25 saying last one best, best one. one and it is yeah. it's the the best 
one yeah. because she's there and I would never before I would never stop and hug her and it was the best mile because I stopped and hugged her you know yeah. and it made mm. my last mile really the best Great one story. so and my husband and son are there at the finish yeah. you know for me every year right. so I want to remind folks, we are speaking with Jack Faltz and Chris Miskinis about the Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge Team. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. So back with uh, Jack. Jack, you had a comment? Uh, Yeah, just uh, what Chris has articulated there in terms of her experience running the marathon, it really sums up and, and, and speaks to that notion that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, you know, that brought together completely um, it's it's not just the training. It's not just the fundraising. It's you know the the very specific quality of experience as opposed to the quality of performance that each of the runners have. Right. So of course they train for and hope to run a particular marathon finishing time. They have goals, specific fundraising goals that they're trying to hit a certain number or whatever. And we have different threshold levels that we recognize and whatnot. But when you put it all together, there's something that's I- intangible mm-hmm. that's hard to really fully articulated, although, as I said, Chris, I think, did a magnificent job, yes. as, as well as could be, to, to really speak to that uh, that dimension of this this experience. And again, I think this is representative of a lot of these kinds of experiences mm-hmm. in life mm-hmm. for, for people, whether you're running marathons or doing other things, supporting very important, valuable causes in your life. Mm-hmm. Now, are there spots open for runners in the Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge? Uh, not now there aren't, mm-hmm. other than people who may have al- already have their own entry. Mm-hmm. But the team starts to be formulated in the fall. Right. And I think I meant on an ongoing basis, year to year. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So the it, team's not limited uh, in size? It's not limited in size in terms of uh, people coming onto the team who have their own entry. Mm-hmm. We have a limited number of people. Uh, invitational entries from the Boston Marathon itself. So once those are gone, those are gone. But we can continue to add, and it's one of the ways that we're able to raise our fundraising goal and and exceed um, the previous best year, um, each successive year, and we're hoping to do that again this year, except for the year 2014. Chris mentioned the bombing year in 2013. So the following year, 2014, the Boston Athletic Association allowed those runners, of which there are five to 6,000, I believe, who didn't finish the race, maybe right. more, mm-hmm. more, but allowed each and every one of them to come back and run the marathon again the next year right. with an entry um, without having to go back to the, if they were charity runners, and most of the people who got stopped were further back in the, in the field. Yep. So they were the slower chari- where they put the charity runners at the s- start of the race as well, uh, people running for charitable organizations. And um, so many of them, of course, accepted the, the offer and uh, they, without an obligation to come back and raise money for the charity that they were involved with the year before, the vast majority of our runners who came back the next year did. So we had a big bump that year yeah. and, and raised eight, more than $8 yeah. million dollars that year. So it'll be hard to imagine us being able to exceed that. But Barring that that unique year, um, uh, we said our our um, uh, our top fundraising year was this past year, 2017, $5.9 million. Wow. And so our goal is to exceed that this year. So again, coming back to the original question, notion of um, uh, we have X number of entries from the Boston Athletic Association, the BAA, and, um, and the way to expand our, the size of our fundraising uh, total is to get each of the runners to raise more money mm-hmm. and to get more runners on the team. But that can only come from people who have their own entry. They've sure. qualified yep. or they, they know somebody, they have a mm-hmm. VIP entry or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. So, so so we're always on the lookout for that. I do want to just take a second and honor a, a, a past guest that we had on this program, Sue Rosen. And I mm-hmm. think, Jack, you mentioned you listened to the program on the way in. I did. Very impressive. Yeah. She, She's sounds, an she sounds like woman. a kindred spirit to Chris. She is. She's an amazing, amazing woman. She is uh, living with metastatic breast cancer, and she is without a doubt one of the most joyful people I've met. Uh, She puts out uh, radiant energy and zest for life, um, and she will always, always lead with the fact that it can't be done alone. Uh, We are not islands in this life. Um, We are all in this together. And as Jack said earlier beautifully, we get back what we put out. Sue Rosen is uh, living test- testimony to that. Well, it's interesting you say, you know, one of our taglines is the true finish line for uh, for 
uh, Chris and all the runners on our team is a world without cancer. Now, whether we ever get to that point, uh, whether that's uh, the eternal horizon that we pursue uh, uh, is, is uh, you know, debatable. But um, we see time and time again now that many people who uh, are living with cancer, as you say, it is now a chronic condition for many, many people who are beneficiaries also of the research that's been done, whereby in years past, they would not have survived right. their cancer. Right, right, and 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 that's a that's an excellent point, an excellent point, Jack. Uh, before we go, I just have to make this observation. Um, having been in your company for the last hour or so, I just uh, there's a lot of things that you could be doing with your life, and um, you've chosen to take this path and to work with runners and and help Dana Farber. Uh, and I just need to tell you that express a debt of gratitude to you um, and thank you for, for everything you do for the cause. I think in, in a larger general sense, uh, what we get in life is a function of what we give. And, um, you know, I was, as I said earlier, and fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time to get involved with this incredible event and organization, Dana-Farber. Um, and all that it represents, and to meet people like Chris now, who, as as we said, you know, she didn't need to come to us to uh, to get an entry That's into right. the Boston Marathon again. She already, and coming in in February, you know, so she only had a few months to do all this fundraising. She was already training for Boston, but to raise thirteen thousand dollars puts her in the upper echelons of our fundraisers each year, and to do it in such a short period of time is is is, again, I'm I'm the beneficiary uh, of a lot of this. Can and, you give us the website, please? The where would how does somebody contact? Uh Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge for more information. Uh, yeah, they can get more information and they can make contributions to the to the general marathon challenge uh, this way or to a specific runner. You can find their name within that if you don't uh, know know their particular website, but it's www.rundfmc.org. There was a band called Run DMC. I'm sure you. this is not the first time you've heard that. So just, folks, just add a DF. MC, DFMC, rundfmc.org. And that's where you're going to find links to how to participate, uh, importantly, how to donate. Uh, we're looking to raise, to blow the lid off of last year, which was five, almost $6 million. Mm -hmm. um, so, and Chris, uh, they can find you, and we can spell your last name on the air. It's M I S K I N. Yes. And remember, everyone, your 100% of your money goes directly to the intended target, which is the are these research programs, which are cutting edge. They're moon, it's moonshot research. It's the Biden model of trying to uh, flood the market with the, the, the latest and greatest minds to try to find targeted cures for targeted cancers. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. And innovation in the field. Mm -hmm. Well, it sure is a worthwhile cause, and I know folks will go out and support the Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge team. And I just want to thank you both for being here. Jack, it is such an honor to meet you for the first time. Quite frankly, Jack, I've always been in awe of your accomplishments uh, at the Boston Marathon. But I must say I'm equally impressed with your work with the Dana-Farber. So, Chris, we'll see you out on the course in April for Jack Fultz and Chris Miskinis. My name is Jim Derrick saying thanks for listening to Chapters. <laughs>